Hey everybody, you're listening to Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices. For all you lovers out there, and all you singles wishing you had a lover, and possibly all you who wish you were single, (laughs) today we have a special Valentine's Day episode. We're going to find out what Valentine's Day was like in the 1800s, and actually moving just into the turn of the century as well. We will be back next week for our grand finale episode of the Irish Gesh series. Do not miss that. But today, it's Valentine's. Let's travel back to the 19th century on Valentine's Day. That is what we are going to be talking about today on Dead Ideas. Okay, what we've got for you today is actually three pieces coming from the 19th century, mostly. Uh, The first one is going to be from 1875 and is going to describe Valentine's Day at that time, I believe. And then after that, we will have one from 1894 called St. Valentine's Day in Olden Times, which will describe how at least this author at that time believed Valentine's Day was celebrated in the past, which could be an interesting perspective. And then finally, for our conclusion, we have a poem written to Edgar Allan Poe in 1909 by his lover, Mrs. Whitman, who was an accomplished poet herself. So that's what we've got in store. All right, let's get to it. Okay, the first one comes from Century Magazine, in 1875. We do not have an author because it's kind of a sort of a generic section of the magazine, I guess, called Home and Society, and there's just a bunch of little sort of... uh, they just describe some topics, and it must be by the editor or something. I don't know. There's no byline. But anyway, this little topic is entitled St. Valentine's Day, appropriately, I guess, and I believe that it is going to describe their view on Valentine's Day in 1875. Now remember, with these Public Domain Theater 3000 episodes, I do not read these pieces in depth beforehand. I browse them a little bit to make sure that they're applicable to the topic, but I do not read them in any depth because that way it's like you, the listener, and I are encountering it at the same time. So let's find out what's here. I don't know what's coming. All right, here we go. The author writes... St. Valentine's own month brings to mind the different modes of observing his day. Why it should have been observed at all is indeed a matter of speculation. (laughs) So (laughs) I can imagine plenty of speculation today, but what are they going to speculate was the origin of St. Valentine's in 1875? This should be curious. Some hold that choosing Valentine's was taken from the Saints' Festival, others from the Festival of the Lupercalia, which was a Roman festival from ancient Rome, pagan Roman festival, at which the names of young women were placed in a box to be drawn out at random by young men, while others, more poetically inclined, accept the legend that on this day of the gentle saint the birds are accustomed to choose their mates. (laughs) So according to legend, all of the birds (laughs) choose their mates on this particular day. That would be a real flock. Okay be a lot of uh, cooing going on on a day like that, thus suggesting a similar course to the members of the human community. In England, the day was once observed with much interest and fervor, 
But of late, the celebration there, as in this country, has dwindled to the mere anonymous sending of epistolary pleasantries in prose or verse. Oh, okay, so in 1875, it sounds like they were already sending Valentine's cards. That's interesting. Valentine parties have recently come into vogue here, and when the guests enter into the spirit of them, these are really very entertaining. Hmm, that should be interesting. They are conducted in two ways. The hostess invites her friends, expecting each to send at least one valentine, original verses of a humorous or bantering sort being most desirable. The writer, who need not reveal his or her name beforehand, even to the hostess, must indicate whether the missives are intended for gentlemen or ladies, and the hostess addresses them as she chooses without knowing their contents. The other way is for the hostess to furnish to each of her guests a list of those expected, thereby giving them an opportunity to write their valentines to particular persons. So I guess that's the Secret Santa kind of style, Secret Valentine, I guess. Seems to me we did that in elementary school when I was a kid. The valentines should be sent to her before the party, and she should be careful to provide herself with a few extra ones for such of her guests as may have been overlooked. When the guests have assembled, the lady of the house produces the valentines and delivers them one at a time, the recipients being compelled to read them aloud for the benefit of the company. Oh, <laughs> I, hope she, I hope she tells everybody that they're going to be read publicly out loud. Otherwise, there could be some very embarrassing stuff in there. Uh, it's kind of like accidentally hitting reply all when you meant to just hit reply <laughs> to someone on, on an email chain. Anyway, some of the missives will be so pertinent and others so inapt that they cannot fail to be amusing. If one guest finds himself good-humoredly laughed at, he has the satisfaction of laughing at others in turn, so that any petty feeling of annoyance that may be experienced will be dispelled and forgotten in the general merriment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like this. I'm very surprised, actually, because I figured that the actual Valentine's Day card would have been uh, something that came later with department stores and Hallmark and all of that. I'm surprised that already in 1875 they are having this same basic idea, or at least something very similar. All right, let's continue. Persons sometimes, in sending valentines, make the innovation of enclosing gifts of small value, coupled with such graceful phrases as will ensure the acceptance of the gift. Others take advantage of the occasion to give presents of considerable worth to people in humble circumstances, to whom charity could not be offered. Hmm. I guess that's like writing a valentines to the girl who nobody else will, or the boy who nobody else will. You know the kid. You know the one picking his nose. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, okay. Thus the memory of the genial Saint Valentine may be perpetuated. Maybe he was extra charitable? I don't know not only by social pleasures, but by positive, practical good. And that's all we have. That's what we have right there from 1875. So, yeah, we learned some interesting stuff there. I mean, they basically got it. It's not that different from how Valentine's is today in America, at least. I know it's not the same in other countries. I lived in Japan for five years, actually, and there it's actually quite different. They do have Valentine's Day. They also have something called White Day. So on Valentine's Day, what happens is women give chocolate 
to men, and it is completely platonic. It has nothing to do with romantic interests, really, or anything like that. They give chocolate to men, and then the next month, so let's see, so uh, Valentine's Day is what, February 14th? So then March 14th is White Day, and on White Day, the men who received Valentine's previously then give chocolate to the women who gave them chocolate, and that's White Day in Japan. So it's not the same all over the world, even today, but I am surprised to find that, at least compared to today's American traditions, it wasn't that different in 1875. I would have expected more difference. Hmm. Okay, now let's go to our second offering for today. This is an article from 1894. We do have an author this time. This is by Alice Morse Earl, and is called St. Valentine's Day in Olden Times. And this comes from the Outlook uh, from February 1894. So let's find out what this author thought at the time was the history of St. Valentine's Day. Okay, so Alice writes, the observance of St. Valentine's Day is now confined to the sending of valentines by children and among vulgar folk <laughs> of so-called comic valentines in futile derision. Hmm, all right, so that's already kind of different than what we heard in the last article. Vulgar folk sending satirical, like, mocking valentines? I kind of like that, actually. <laughs> I might do that for Nick and Anna this year. Oh, okay, let's see. All right, so she continues. Yet it is a festival which has been honored by poets and observed by lovers for centuries. In Pepys's diary, I don't know who Pepys is, but in Pepys's diary, we find many allusions to the Valentine customs of his day. Let's find out who Pepys is. Huh. Samuel Pepys lived 1633 to 1703, and the detailed private diary that Pepys kept from 1660 until 1669 was first published in the 19th century. La la la. Uh, one of the most important primary sources for the English Restoration period. Hmm. Okay, interesting. All right, so Alice references that. She says, in Pepys's diary, we find many allusions to the Valentine customs of his day. Oh, interesting. I should have done that one. Hmm. Well, I guess there's always next year. And it seems that not only sentimental verses, and it seems that not only sentimental verses, but substantial gifts were given as Valentines. Pepys gave Martha Batten one year for a Valentine one pair of embroidered and six pairs of plain white gloves that cost 40 shillings. Hmm. Another year, his cousin Turner told him she had drawn him for her valentine. Oh, like drawn a portrait of him? Hmm. He straightway bought her a pair of green silk stockings and garters and shoestrings and two pairs of jessamine gloves, all coming to about 28 shillings. Hmm. I wonder what jessamine is, jessamine gloves. The expense troubled him, as spending money always did, when he had to lay out five pounds for a valentine for his wife. Well, I, I bet that was a lot at the time. 
He shows plainly the customs of the times in his entry on Valentine's Day, 1665. Oh, we're going to get a quote here from Pepys's diary. Nice. Okay. Pepys writes, This morning comes Dickie Penn to be my wife's valentine. <laughs> Dickie Penn? <laughs> and come to our bedside. To our, to our bedside? Okay. Let's see where this goes. By the same token, I had him brought to my bedside, thinking to have made him kiss me. But he perceived me and would not, so went to his valentine, a notable stout witty boy. This is written by Samuel Pepys? Okay, alright, I'm fine with that. Again he writes, This morning came up to my wife's bedside little Will Mercer, to be her valentine and brought her name writ upon blue paper in gold letters, done by himself very pretty, and we were both well pleased with it. Oh, I, okay, I think these are little boys, so, all right, it's not quite as homoerotic as I thought, <laughs> but well, I don't, <laughs> we'll see where it goes, okay. And that was the end of Pepys's diary quote, um, by the way, so now we're getting Alice's words again. Not only boys, but men boldly intruded into Madame Pepys's bedchamber and were challenged by her, quote-unquote. We find in Sir Thomas Brown's letters, and even in Governor Winthrop's of New England, similar references to challenging valentines. Huh, challenging valentines, okay. Gloves and ribbons were valentine gifts everywhere in Great Britain. Shakespeare refers in Hamlet, to the universal belief. Wait, so what was the challenge? I I don't know. Okay, well anyway, I guess we're moving on to Shakespeare. Shakespeare refers in Hamlet to the universal belief of his times that the first unmarried man seen by a maid on St. Valentine's morn would become her husband. Hmm, okay. And then there's a quote from Shakespeare. Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morn be time, and I a maid at your window to be your valentine. <laughs> Herrick, in his Hesperides, speaks of the practice of divining by rosebuds on Valentine's Day. Goldsmith tells us in his Vicar of Wakefield that rustics sent true lover's knots on that day, a pretty fashion. Hmm, I don't know what a true lover's knot is, but uh, there's a couple of methods for you guys out there who are pining and have no uh, valentine for this Valentine's Day. The custom of valentine dealing prevailed in many English countries. A young woman would write the names of the young men she knew or had a preference for, each on a slip of paper. She then blindfolded, drew a slip from the hat in which they had been placed, and the name written thereon was held to be her true love and her possible husband. <laughs> okay, well, there's another method for you. I think I'm going to try this with Magic the Gathering cards <laughs> and see who your new husband is going to be. Hopefully it won't be like a swamp zombie. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. This very simple and innocent ceremony was severely reprehended by many pious pastors as a heathenish, lewd, superstitious custom. St. Francis de Sales, we learn from his life, 
severely forbade the custom of valentines, and to abolish it changed it into giving billets with the names of certain saints for them to honor and to imitate, which must have proved but sorry fun and of short popularity. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. Not nearly as much fun. Uh, here's a saint's name for you. Oh. In 1667, Pepys notes the fashion of combining mottos with the names such mottos as most courteous and most fair, and suggests the very pretty use of anagrams. Hmm. In Derbyshire, a curious custom prevailed of peeping through the keyhole on the early morn as a matrimonial divination. Ooh, this, this, is, getting, this is getting a little racy now. If the spying eye chanced to see but a single object at the first glance, the looker would remain unmarried for the ensuing year. If she saw two objects or persons, she was sure to quickly have a lover. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I'm sure this is more innocent than I'm imagining, but it's more fun in my mind. If fortune chanced to drive a cock and hen <laughs> within the range of vision of the keyhole, she was sure of being married ere the year was ended. Okay, everybody, so... <laughs> okay, new mission for you all. Become Peeping Toms, find yourself a keyhole, and try to see a cock. <laughs> and, okay. As with all old-time holidays, the poorer classes seized on St. Valentine's Day as the opportunity to demand gifts. On many holidays, persons of all ranks of life forced unwilling gifts from each other. <laughs> what? It is curious that in the one holiday we have still retained in America, Christmas, we have clung to the lowest form of its observance, the exchange of gifts, while as a religious holiday it has lost its significance. In Cambridgeshire and Herefordshire, until recently, little bands of children went from house to house on St. Valentine's morn singing... Curl your locks as I do mine, two before and three behind. So good morning, Valentine. <laughs> okay. Small gifts of money were thrown out to them. In other counties, the children sing, Good morrow, Valentine. First tis yours, then tis mine. Please give me a Valentine. In some towns, the drawing of lots for a true love is done on St. Valentine's Eve. Another method of divination is to go to the churchyard at midnight and walk twelve times round the church, repeating without intermission, Hemp seed I sow, hemp seed I sow, he that loves me best, come after me and know. <laughs> that's, that's a false rhyme there, it's N-O-W, now. False rhymes like that were actually quite popular for a while, where you expect a rhyme and then it, it doesn't actually rhyme. But yeah. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. So anyway, I guess if you do this, she says, It is believed that the figure of the lover will then appear and make some sign by which his identity may be discovered. Wow, so you're actually conjuring your lover by walking around the churchyard at midnight 12 times and saying this magical chant. <laughs> I wonder what level spell that is. Wow, that's awesome. In New England, 20 years ago, it was the universal custom among little children to send valentines. 
Okay, now we're getting into a little more familiar territory. There's been a lot of really interesting ones I've never heard of here. This is great. Anyway, okay, so New England 20 years ago. Universal custom among little children to send valentines. As soon as it was dusk, the valentines were carried clandestinely to the various doors and left with loud rings of the doorbell or with a succession of violent knocks. Boughton valentine. Boughton? Okay, it says Boughton valentines of lace paper or stamped paper. It must mean, okay, so you didn't make it yourself. It was bought, like bought at the market, store-bought, so Hallmark cards, basically. Okay, boughten valentines of lace paper or stamped paper with printed mottos, costing a cent or two apiece. Okay, yeah, store-bought. Or even the exorbitant sum of five cents, and clearly pri <laughs> prices have gone up since then, indicated not only much opulence on the part of the sender, because they could afford five cents, but a violent extreme of affection and interest. Ooh. Cases were known where even such unwanted luxuries, unwanted, so U-N-W-O-N-T-E-D, meaning not unwanted like I don't want it, but unwanted like, like wanton destruction, like rampant, I guess. Okay, cases were known where even such unwanted luxuries as carnelian rings were enclosed with the valentine, a most significant gift. In general, these New England valentines were of home manufacture, sheets of paper occasionally heart-shaped, with bits of gilt and colored paper. Gilt, like gilded, I guess? Okay, so I guess you can do, you can do the version where you go to a craft store, or you can, you can do the five-cent version, or you can get your own stuff from a craft store and make it yourself. Hmm. Okay. Or tiny stamped roses with hearts pasted thereon, and with appropriate, though trite, inscriptions in the giver's handwriting. And here's an example she gives, I guess. The rose is red, the violet blue, the pink is pretty, and so are you. If you love me as I love you, no knife shall cut our love in two. Oh, yes. And many other lines of amatory doggerel. <laughs> Shelley's pretty lines, I guess Percy Bysshe Shelley, the famous poet. Shelley's pretty lines were unknown to us. My heart to you is given, oh, do you give yours to me, we'll lock them up together and throw away the key. So, I guess what she's saying is we would never write something as, like, highfalutin poetry as that. It would just be as doggerel verse. I think that's what she means. The child who received the largest number of valentines was an assured favorite. Oh, I guess even in 1894 as a popularity game. At a somewhat earlier date, cut paper valentines of white paper, cut in various significant designs, were very popular in America. Hmm. Okay. Well, it looks like that's just about it for her article here. We've just got one paragraph left, and she concludes, Good St. Valentine, I pray thee give us absolution and forgive us our degenerate and irreverent days when I confess to thee that, to thine honor, and in tender memory of thy natal day in this new world in 1894, I saw offered for sale a large valentine and piece of AI chewing gum for one cent. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's like some damn nice chewing gum, because that costs a whole penny. Uh, well, that's a little bit about uh, the history 
of uh, Valentine's Day. I guess not just as it was perceived in 1894, because she was actually quoting from a historical source from the 1600s, uh, Pepys' diary. So that was actually really cool. I, I would call that real history. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, very interesting. There's some history behind St. Valentine's Day. Okay, I guess it's time to go to our third and final piece for today's special Valentine's episode. And this is a poem written to Edgar Allan Poe, the famous poet. This is from 1909, so just after the turn of the century. This is from Century Magazine, January 1909. And it is an article by James A. Harrison and Charlotte F. Daly, entitled Poe and Mrs. Whitman, New Light on a Romantic Episode. And in it, they publish the letters exchanged between Edgar Allan Poe and Mrs. Whitman, who I believe became his wife, uh, at least his lover. Let's find out. I'm going to read a little bit of the intro, and then we'll go to the poem that she writes to him as a valentine. Okay, so the intro states, It should be remembered, to the credit of that most tuneful of America's poets, the sad-hearted, the fated Poe, that he was ever faithful to his child-wife, and that all the women to whom he was attracted were women of refinement. After the death of his wife occurred, the tempestuous wooing of the poet Mrs. Whitman. Oh, okay, so he was devoted to his... Must have been his first wife, the quote-unquote child wife. But after she died, then there was this tempestuous wooing of another poet, this Mrs. Whitman. Fourteen years before this... Okay, so they go on to describe some kind of um, not too very interesting aspects of it. But then they mention that among these papers, I guess they mean the letters will be found certain documents attesting the fact, sometimes denied, that a marriage was positively to have taken place. Okay, so maybe it isn't, like, publicly confirmed that Poe and Mrs. Whitman ever got married, but this seems to suggest they did. I don't know. Okay, well, we'll just leave it as an open question mark. Were, did Poe and Whitman ever get married? Question mark. Good enough. Okay, he also quotes one of Poe's impassioned letters to Mrs. Sarah Helen Whitman, where he says, Helen, my Helen, the Helen of a thousand dreams. Hmm. Which I imagine is a comparison to uh, Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships. Okay, so he must have really been smitten with her. Does describe this Mrs. Whitman rarely gifted as a poet herself, accomplished in many literatures, imbued with the culture of France and Germany, and tracing descent from an ancient Celtic-Norman stock, to which she believed Poe's lineage also ran up. Sarah Helen Power was born in Providence, Rhode Island, January 19th, Poe's birthday, 1803, and died June 27th, 1878. So they shared the same birthday? Huh. Marrying John W. Whitman, a lawyer of Boston, in 1828, she was left a widow by his death in 1833. Well, I was wondering about that, because calling her Mrs. Whitman makes it sound like she's still married. Okay. Betrothed to Edgar Poe in 1848, a few months before his death, the engagement was broken on the eve of the marriage by the interference of friends. 
huh. And then it goes on to describe a little more of her literary accomplishments and stuff, but uh, we don't have uh, time for all of this. There's a lot here. So we are just going to go to the poem that she wrote to Edgar Allan Poe, her lover, and apparently her betrothed before they were broken up by friends. That's <laughs> I almost want to hear that story more than anything else. All right, let's see if we can find the poem here. Okay, here it is. A following valentine by one of America's most justly distinguished poetesses was among the number received at the valentine soiree. There must have been some kind of a party, like we had heard before. A poem, however, whose intrinsic beauty takes it quite out of the category of ordinary valentines. It was addressed to E.A. Poe. Okay, and here it is. The title, it says, To Edgar A. Poe. It looks like it starts with a quote, possibly from one of Edgar Allan Poe's own poems. It starts, A raven true, as ever flapped his heavy wing against the window of the sick and croaked despair, Young's Revenge. Okay, and then the poem goes on. Oh, thou grim and ancient raven, from the night's plutonic shore often dreams thy ghastly pinions wave and flutter round my door. Oft thy shadowy dims the moonlight sleeping on my chamber floor. <laughs> yes. Okay, so it's clearly, yeah, it seems to be like a parody of his raven poem. <laughs> okay. Romeo talks of white doves trooping amid crows athwart the night. But to see thy dark wings swooping down the silvery path of light, amid swans and dovelets stooping, were to me a nobler sight. Oft amid the twilight glooming round some grim ancestral tower, in the lurid distance looming, I can see thy pinions lower, hear thy sullen storm cry booming through the lonely midnight hour. Oft this workday world forgetting from its turmoil curtain snug, by the sparkling embers sitting on the richly broidered rug, something round about me flitting glimmers like a golden bug. Dreamily its path I follow in a bee-line to the moon, till into some dreamy hollow of the midnight sinking soon, lo, he glides away before me and I lose the golden boon. Oft like Proserpina I wander on the night's plutonic shore, hoping, fearing, while I ponder on thy loved and lost Lenore. <laughs> yep. Till thy voice like distant thunder sounds across the lonely moor. From thy wing one purple feather wafted o'er my chamber floor, like a shadow o'er the heather, charms my vagrant fancy more than all the flowers I used to gather on Idalia's velvet shore. Then, O oh, grim and ghastly raven, Wilt thou to my heart and ear be a raven true as ever, flapped his wings and croaked despair? Not a bird that roams the forest shall our lofty eyrie share. Providence, Rhode Island, February 14th. Okay, so that, ah, interesting. Okay, so our article we're reading is coming from 1909, but it is referencing all the way back to 1848, making this the earliest of all the pieces that we've read today. Hmm. Okay. Well, that was very cool. All right, so <laughs> there you have it. A Valentine's Day parody of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe by his lover and perhaps wife and at least betrothed, Mrs. Whitman. Huh. <laughs>
okay, well, if that doesn't cheer you up, all you single people out there hoping for a lover, then I guess try one of the many techniques that we learned for divining <laughs> who's going to be your lover, like uh, shuffling a deck of cards to find out you know, which name that you've written on there is going to be your lover. Okay, so anyway, all right, good enough. Happy Valentine's, everybody. Let's draw this to a close. All right, so, okay. All right, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, so thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back next week for our grand finale of our epic Monster Link series on the medieval Irish geish. And this finale, let me tell you, is going to be properly grand. That's right. We are pulling out all the stops. I've been keeping the content a secret. I've been just teasing you with it bit by bit. And now here, finally, is what we have in store for you. We are going to tell the story of the destruction of Dajerga's hostel, which is the one that Andre said in an earlier episode is so crazy that he wants to make an action movie about it someday. And it would make a great action movie. Probably a B movie. <laughs> but, but anyway, that's basically what we are going to do for our grand finale episode. We're going to tell it like a movie because this story is action-packed, epic, over-the-top, and badass. In fact, it is, in my opinion, the pulp fiction of medieval Irish literature, because it really does come from actual medieval literature, but oh man, is this one a treat. <laughs> and in this story, just like Jules and Vincent from Pulp Fiction having the worst day of their gangster lives, this is a story of a high king of Ireland having the worst day of his life. So this is going to be the destruction of Dejerga's hostel as directed by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> and if that's not even enough for you, we have even got a badass soundtrack. Yes, a soundtrack contributed by Brooklyn band Twin Guns. Awesome. Check them out. They are awesome. They have this Pulp Fiction-y sound. And, oh, okay. It's going to be good. So seriously, you do not want to miss this grand finale episode. Tell all your friends about it. Tweet about it. Talk about it on Facebook. Whatever you can do, this is going to be good. And while you're at it, if you like the show, if you want us to keep doing what we're doing, if you think we have delivered on our promise to give you a truly epic monster series like this Geish series has been, be sure to support the show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. All right, everybody. See you next week for our grand finale episode.